Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Uh, We're in the second week of Advent now. I hope it's going well for you and that really you are leaning into this idea that you're waiting for God to act and that waiting on God never leads to disappointment. Amen. Amen. Well, Advent and Christmas are seasons of song. I mean... It wouldn't be Christmas without our carols. So Advent is a season of yearning. So we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Christmas is a season of celebration. So we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. During Advent and Christmas, we sing our songs The songs of Messiah. Now, what are songs? Songs are basically poetry set to music. And poetry is how we express the ineffable, the unspeakable, that which seems to be lying beyond ordinary language. The precision of prose has its place but it cannot speak properly of the truly transcendent. Language that aspires to speak of the divine is best done as poetry. And by poetry, I don't necessarily mean rhyming verse. I mean, that may be included, but I mean language that prioritizes form over function, beauty over utility, passion over pragmatism. So this is why Genesis opens with poetry. It's why the Psalms are all poetry. It's why the prophets were almost all poets. It's why so much of the best parts of the New Testament are poetic, like the Beatitudes, the prologue to John's Gospel, Paul's great ode to love in 1 Corinthians 13, and the majestic, the majestic hymns of praise found in the book of Revelation. Now, what we call the Christmas story is mostly found in the first two chapters of Luke. And in those first two chapters, in the Christmas story of Luke, there are four songs, four poetic, prophetic songs. The song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, the song of the angels, and the song of Simeon. During the last four Sundays of 2020, and yes, 2020 is coming to an end. Yeah, yeah. Somebody run around the auditorium here. During the last four Sundays of 2020, I want us to visit each of these four songs in Luke's Christmas story. Today, I want to start with Zechariah's song. But before we hear Zechariah's song, we first need to know Zechariah's story. 
So let's get started. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is, by the way, this is how Luke opens his gospel. I mean, there's a little dedication to Theophilus. But this is really how he begins his gospel. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. All right, so our story begins like a lot of great stories do in dark days. Our story begins in the dark days of the Roman occupation of Judea, the brutal Roman occupation of Judea. Our story begins in the dark days of King Herod. What do we know about Herod? Oh, we know a lot about Herod. Um, Herod became king king of Israel, king of the Jews, in 37 before the Common Era, which means that Herod became king about 30 years before the birth of Jesus because the calendar's off. He became king at the age of 35, and he was made king by the Roman Senate as a reward for his military service to the Roman Empire as a general. So now, for the first time in so long, it felt like forever, at last, Israel has a king. I mean, this is what the prophets were going on and on and on about, that God would send a king. I mean, they hadn't had a king, but God would send a king. God would raise up a king. God would anoint a king. He would be the king of the Jews, and he would bring about righteousness and salvation. And now Herod has been made king of the Jews, and he wasn't who they were looking for. Well, I mean, there were some that were happy. The Sadducees, the temple elite, the wealthy of Jerusalem, the aristocracy of Jerusalem, they were happy because he was going to maintain the status quo. But the righteous Jews yearning for what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and all the rest had prophesied. They were bitterly disappointed. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to wait and wait and wait for something to happen. It's another thing to wait and wait and wait for something to happen, and it's all wrong. Something happens, and it's all wrong. That's Herod. He's the king of the Jews, and this is happening at this time. This is the setting for our story. And so now the hope of a righteous king who will bring salvation to Israel seems now farther away than ever. Meanwhile, in the hill country of Judea, there is a country priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. All you Elizabeths, that's where you got your name. They're rural people. They live in the country. Zechariah's a priest. 
Elizabeth also comes from the line of Aaron. And we are told that they are blameless. That is, they're devout. Their religion is not a sham. Zechariah is not a charlatan priest. He believes and he lives it. And so we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth, living in the provincial hill country of Judea, are righteous and blameless before the Lord. But blamelessness did not lead to blessedness because of being childless. When they were first married, of course, they were excited about to have a family, you know. But no children were forthcoming. And so they prayed, right? They prayed to God. Send us a child, send us a child. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and no child came. The barrenness remained. The childlessness remained. They prayed for a long time. But they don't hardly pray those prayers anymore because, as Luke tells us, they're getting on in years. Now, Zechariah belonged to a particular division of priests because this was all... You know, quite organized. He belongs to the division of Abijah. And periodically, not often, it would be his division's turn to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. These are big days. He's a country priest. But now and then, his division gets to go to Jerusalem and have their turn for a week to perform all of the rites in the temple. Now, this particular year, in the dark days of King Herod, the lot fell to Zechariah. You see, by lot, they would choose one priest from the division to enter the actual precincts of the temple, go inside the temple, not in the outer court, but go into the temple proper and offer incense upon the altar. Now you were only eligible to be in the lottery if you had never done this. So in other words, it's a once and a lifetime opportunity and most priests never had it. The lot never fell to them. But on this year, during the dark days of King Herod, the lot fell to Zechariah. It's the privilege of a lifetime. And of course, you know, he's leading up to it, he's rehearsing because, you know, everything's scripted. You don't go in there and ad lib. He's going to go in alone. He'll, there'll be a prayer service outside where people are participating, and then he will enter the temple proper, all alone. And I mean, he's got his vestments, they're all just perfect. He's memorized the prayers, he knows every movement, you know, exactly how he's going to stand and, where, and when he's going to put, the, it's all scripted. He's nervous but excited. You know, it's that nervous but really excited. And the big moment comes and the prayers have been prayed. And now he enters the temple. The first and only time this priest, this country priest will get to do this. He enters the temple. He's all ready to go. And there's the altar. And there's an angel standing there. It, blow, it just freaks him out. He forgets everything. Probably dropped the incense. He's terrified. Here's what happens next. Luke 1.12. When Zechariah saw him, it's Gabriel. 
Oh, you Gabriels, that's where you got your name. When Zacharias saw him, he was terrified. That's always what happens. And fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, you know what the angel said to him? Yeah, that's what they always say. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah goes into the temple and he encounters an angel, one of only two angels that are named in the Bible. There's Gabriel and Michael. And he encounters Gabriel. This, this is not your flunky angel. This is, a, this is a top angel here. And he's terrified. And angels always have to say the same thing. Don't be afraid. It's what heaven has to say to earth. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Zechariah, your prayers were heard. You thought that God didn't hear your prayer. I know. It's been decades. You've been praying for that child, and now you've almost quit because you're getting on in years. Let me tell you, God heard your prayer, and he heard, the, he heard your prayer the first time you prayed it. All you wanted was a child, but God wanted to give you more. God wants to give you a prophet. Not only a prophet, this will turn out to be the greatest prophet according to Jesus. Later, Jesus will say, of those born of women, which is a large category, of those born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. So Zechariah and Elizabeth have endured long years of disappointment and shame. I know it shouldn't be this way, but in these times there was a stigma attached to childlessness. And after bearing long, long years of disappointment, shame, see, they, they, they are embodying Israel's state. Israel as a whole has endured long, long years of disappointment and shame. But now they're to have joy and gladness. It's been a long advent. They've waited a long time. But those that wait upon the Lord will not be disappointed. And Gabriel has come to tell them the good news. Now, their son that will be born will grow up to become, you know, the forerunner of Messiah. Not the Messiah. Some thought he might be. He said, nope, that's not me. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I am preparing the way, though. John the Baptist is the one that prepares a people to receive the appearance of Messiah. John the Baptist, in fact, is the first one to publicly announce Jesus as the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist 
has a lifelong Nazarite vow imposed upon him even prior to his conception. John the Baptist drinks no wine because John doesn't bring the party. John is the one who's announcing the party's about to come. Get ready. There's about to be a party. I'm not bringing the party. I'm just telling you the party's about to come. And you want to be ready for it. Now, the party that is the kingdom of God actually begins when Jesus turns water to wine at Cana of Galilee. John is Advent. Jesus is Christmas. Now, now we've heard uh, Zechariah's story. Now we're ready for his song. On the day that Zechariah and Elizabeth had their son circumcised and gave him his name, this happened. Luke 1, Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. It's a poem. It's a song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. You, you see how, how the experience of Zechariah and Elizabeth as a single couple is reflecting the situation of Israel as a whole. It's, just been, it's been long disappointment, and, and they think that their prayers have never been heard. God, send your salvation, send your king, send your Messiah, send our deliverer. And they think they haven't been heard, but they have been heard. So he, he's filled with the Spirit and begins to prophesy. And he writes this song that has kind of bounces back. It has double meanings. It's, it's coming out of Zechariah and Elizabeth's experience, but it's also spoken of the nation of Israel as a whole. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child. See, this is, this is the eighth day after his birth. This little baby hasn't been named yet. And uh, as is the Jewish tradition to this day, Little baby is circumcised, and then and he's given his name. And see, I, I think, you know, Zechariah is holding this baby that he's waited so long for. And he looks at that child and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. This is what Malachi had said there'd be one that would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Zechariah's prophecy, my little eight, day old son is going to grow up and be that and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people behold the lamb of god 
by the forgiveness of their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To give knowledge of salvation to His people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us and give us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So these are prophecies about Messiah, who, who at this point in the story, we don't know who it is. We know that he's coming and that this little baby just named John is going to prepare the way for him. But we, at this point, we still don't know who, who he is. Hang in there. We'll get to it. Not this Sunday. Some of you already may have read the book, though you may know. Um, these are prophecies of Messiah and the Messiah's forerunner. The salvation that Messiah brings looks like this. I mean, we're getting a picture that Messiah is coming. He's coming soon enough that this little baby is going to be the one that prepares the way for him. And this salvation from God through Messiah is going to look like this. And I'm going to read this again, part of this. This is from N.T. Wright's translation. Salvation from, this is what salvation looks like. According to Zechariah's song, salvation from our enemies, rescue from hatred, to give us deliverance from fear and from foes, guiding our feet in the path of peace. The heart of our God is full of mercy. That's why his daylight has dawned from on high, bringing light to the dark as we sat in death's shadow, guiding our feet in the path of peace. Well, that's a beautiful song. That's a beautiful song of salvation. Zechariah's song says that through Messiah, we are saved from enemies and hate, from fear and foes, placing our feet on the path of peace. Now, seriously, isn't that all you really want? I mean, to be set free from fear so that you walk in peace. If you, now just think about it, take your, your, your current life as it is. If you could be forever free from fear so that you are forever filled with peace, wouldn't that be salvation? You'd say, I think I'm saved because I used to be so fearful, so anxious. Fear hath torment, but no more. The fear's gone and I'm full of peace. Amen. That's what salvation looks like, according to Zechariah's song. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that this kind of salvation can come by the way of the world. The world as it is. The world in the dark days of Herod had a certain arrangement to, us, to it. And we have to make the mistake of not thinking that this salvation, this deliverance from fear and an establishment in peace can come the way of the world. What do I mean by that? Well, the world says we're saved from our enemies by destroying our enemies, the way of war. We're saved from those who hate us by hating them even more. We're saved from fear by placing the highest priority on security. The world says we can walk in peace when we've eliminated every possible threat. 
Of course, I've just described to you the way of salvation according to Caesar Augustus and King Herod. I mean, it's A.D. 6 or 7. You go somewhere to buy something. You'll have a little coin. Look at that coin. Oh, there's, there's old Caesar Augustus. He's got a title. Savior of the world. And how does Caesar save the world? By making it secure. How does he make it secure? Kill the bad guys. So the gospel, according to Caesar Augustus, who's also given titles like Son of God, Prince of Peace, Savior of the World. The gospel, according to Caesar Augustus and King Herod, is if we want to be saved from fear, we have to hate our haters and destroy our enemies. But does it work? Does it work? Of course it doesn't work. I mean, it just leads us deeper and deeper into the abyss of fear. We think it it doesn't work. I mean, I don't have time to tell the whole story of Herod the Great. It is a fascinating story, though. Somebody should do a really accurate movie on his life. But just to give you the spoiler alert, in in the end, he ends up, in his 70s, he ends up a psychotically paranoid man. Suspicious of everyone. Absolutely filled with fear. Even though his whole life has been poured into security and, and keeping the enemies at bay and destroying anyone that's a threat. That's why we're told, you know, that when he got the message from the Magi, that King Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him because people know that when King Herod is disturbed, bad things are going to start happening. The secret police are going to be on the prowl. We can say it this way. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. So when Messiah comes, he will not save Israel by being more Caesar than Caesar. When Messiah comes, he will not save Israel by being more Herod than Herod. Messiah is the king who leads Israel into God's salvation, God's way of shalom. Messiah will not play the game of trying to conquer fear by fear. Caesar and Herod say, oh, here's how, here's how we'll conquer fear. We, we have all of our fears. We'll conquer our fears by making everybody afraid of us. Trying to conquer fear by fear, and it only multiplies fear. So when Jesus began his ministry, now we're just jumping up three decades. When Jesus began his ministry... His challenge constantly was to convince Israel that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the world. That the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of Herod, just with better people. That the kingdom of God is not Rome with just a more benevolent Caesar. The kingdom of God does not consist of beating Caesar and Herod at their own game. That's how the devil keeps winning. 
So in Cana of Galilee, whoo, the party gets started. Jesus says, all right, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to bring the party. And they have no wine. He said, well, they're fixing to have wine. <laughs> and 180 gallons of wine are produced of the finest quality. Like, you know, 100 point by wine spectator. <laughs> and the party has begun. And what does Jesus do? How, what's the party look like? Well, I mean, uh, let's heal people. People are healed. People that have been sick all their life, they're not sick anymore. People that have been, people that have been under control of demonic spirits are set free. Outsiders are gathered in and welcomed. The dead are even raised. And, and, every, and everybody's just getting forgiven. I mean, just, just see somebody being lowered down. Oh, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> I didn't even come for that. Yeah, but they are. Jesus is healing and saving and delivering and forgiving. And everybody loves it, but everybody's going, yeah, but when does the shooting begin? To make it anachronistic. Yeah, this is great. This is great. I love it. People getting healed and set free from demons and sins are forgiven. That's fantastic. But, you know, when do we get started? Because, you know, we got to kill the Romans, right? we got to depose the, because, you know, you have the whole Herodian dynasty. I mean, this Herod is long since dead, but he had his dynasty. And so there's others that come along. So when, when do we start, you know, when do we hang all the Herod kings and princes? When do we take up the sword and get Pilate out of town? John is in prison saying, when do we start? And Jesus, in effect, says, uh, we've, we've started. This is it. This is what the party looks like. It doesn't look like that. It's never going to be that. And Jesus goes all the way to the cross, never deviating from what? He will guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, the Messiah can't guide our feet into the path of peace and then launch a war. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I understand that the liturgies of empire can use that kind of language. But, you know, if you've got nickels worth of sense, you can see through it. Jesus goes all the way from Cana to the cross, never deviating from the path of peace. And he's crucified. By Herod. And by Pilate. And by Caiaphas in collusion with them, by the Roman Empire. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. That's why we're here on Sunday. We celebrate this every Sunday. It's that good. God raised him from the dead, and Jesus comes back and says what? Peace be with you. He comes back and he speaks the words of peace. Because, listen, there is no way to peace. There's only the way of peace. Right? There is no way to peace. There's only the way of peace. And that's what Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, leads us in. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
Where there's hatred, let me so love. I mean, the old way is they hate me, I'll hate them. They hate me a lot, I'll hate them more. Where there's hate, let me so love. Where there's injury, I'm going to pay them back. I have an eye into No, where there's injury, how's it go? I, <laughs> pardon, thank you. I have to get into it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where, where there's hate, let me so love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Well, let's, I'll let you preach a sermon. Come on. It's a build your own sermon kit here. Come on. Despair, hope, darkness, light, sadness, joy. Lord, may I not so much seek to be consoled as to console. I mean, you know, you need your consolation. So come around. And we'll do, but, but don't get stuck in that I'm always the one that's got to receive consolation. Now and then say, I need to go to church here online. <laughs> However you do it. I want to bring some consolation because there's some people that need it. Lord, may I not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying, here's the gospel, that we are born to life. Amen. That we're born to eternal life, everlasting life, the life of the age to come, the life of Jesus. And this is the gospel that actually no one understood until it had all been played out. Which is why we're only in Advent, but I have to preach some Easter or none of it makes sense. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. And the party has kicked off. <laughs> and it looks like this. Looks like this. You know, I could, I could riff a little bit more looking at the clock. I got a little time. Um, we talked about Zechariah going into that temple. And the temple was, um, well, you, you think of it as these ever-restrictive, concentric circles of holiness. So Israel, that's the chosen people. And in Israel, Jerusalem is the holy city. In Jerusalem, the holy place, is the temple. But the temple has levels, concentric circles of ever-increasing restrictiveness. You have the court of the Gentiles. They can come so far. You have the court of women. They can come so far. You have the court where all Jewish men can come, but only no further. Then you, have, then you have, it gets holier and holier and holier, and then there's, there, and then there's the temple that Zechariah got to go into. Actually, go into the temple, Zechariah, one time in his life. And then there is the Holy of Holies. We didn't even talk about that. Then there's the Holy of Holies that only one person, the high priest, once a year gets to go into. And now all of that's changed. This is the Holy of Holies. It's, it's shifted from temple to table. And now it's no longer, oh, if you're not Jewish, you can't come. Oh, if you're a woman, you can't come in for it. Oh, if you're not a priest. Oh, if you're not the high. Now it's, hey, the party started. <laughs> come on. Come to the table. 
What do I got to do? You got to come to the table. Just that's, that's it. Just come. Just as I am without one plea. <laughs> Just come to the table. I think with this, the only thing that you really, the only thing that you can't do is once you come to the table, you can't try to stop others. You have to have that, that same kind of openness. Hey, come to the table because the party started, because our sins are forgiven, because there was that moment when all the sin of the world came upon Jesus and he shed his blood, but he forgave it all. He just forgave it all. And so this is where we have the new start. This is where we get free. This is where we find friends. This is where we stop the hating and start loving. This is where we let go of our fears and begin to live in peace. Amen. Confess with me our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith, and you who have little you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.